0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported.
1: Community Radio from South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
3: And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021.
2: Later in the program, we have an excerpt from last week's edition of Big Talk. Producer Michael Glab speaks with author Lori Borman, whose work, 100% American Hate Groups, Christian Nationalism, and the Indiana KKK, was recently published in the Limestone Post. Lab says his discussion with Borman is particularly relevant this week in the wake of the mass killing of Asian Americans in Georgia.
3: Also coming up in the next half hour, a protest called Gathering Against Asian Hate took place earlier this afternoon at Sample Gates. More on that in today's headlines. But first, your local news brief.
0: From WFHB. This is the local news brief for Wednesday, March 24th. I'm Aaron Comforti. This morning, the Indiana State Department of Health announced that all Indiana residents aged 16 and older will be eligible to sign up for the COVID-19 vaccine on March 31st. A handful of other states have already opened up vaccine eligibility to the entire adult population, but in Indiana, so far almost one million people have been fully vaccinated. That's about one in six people in the state. Another million and a half people have received the first dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. The Indiana State Department of Health has documented almost 700,000 cases of COVID-19 in the state. And while that is likely an undercount, it represents another large group of Hoosiers who may still have some immunity to the virus. In Monroe County, about one in seven people has received a full vaccine dose. Another fifth of the population has received their first shot. Right now, about a thousand Monroe County residents are receiving the vaccine every day and a local landmark was demolished yesterday. It wasn't known for its architecture or for being that structurally sound, but for years, the Players' Pub served as a hub for local musicians and as a touring stop for bands making their way through this part of the Midwest. Last month, Bloomington City Council voted not to give the building which housed the Players' Pub an historic status, which would have prevented its demolition. While the pub, as it was known, has been closed since early 2019. The demolition of the building was, for some, a symbol of the decline in local music venues. In recent years, local music mainstays like Rhino's, The Void, and Max's Place have all closed down as well. That's all for your local news brief from WFHB. I'm Aaron Comforti.
2: At 2.30 p.m. on Wednesday, about 150 demonstrators gathered at the sample gates to protest anti-Asian hate. The Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition organized the protest. Protesters held signs that said, protect international students, and racism is a virus. Another said, you can't love Asian culture and not stand with the Asian community. An organizer spoke at the protest over a megaphone.
4: Today we say loud and clear that anti-Asian violence is not trivial, it is deadly, it is real. Today we say we reject white supremacy, xenophobia, racism, and most explicitly all kinds of anti-Asian stereotyping. Particularly the stereotyping of Asian women that enables and excuses the kind of violence that we saw in Atlanta last week. Today we recognize that six of the victims who were Asian were killed because they were Asian. Because they were Asian women because they were Asian women who worked in the servants industry that is extremely vulnerable to social and economic exploitation. To all of this, we want to shout what has been shouted across every major city in the United States. Stop Asian hate! Say it after me if you're feeling it. Stop Asian hate!
2: This protest comes in the aftermath of a shooting that led to the deaths of eight people at an Atlanta spa. Six of the victims were women of Asian descent. According to the New York Times, investigators said they had not ruled out racial bias as a motivating factor. Names of the victims of the Atlanta attack were read aloud as organizers offered a moment of silence for the lives lost. Simon Lau, a member of the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, talked to WFHB News about why he attended the Gathering Against Asian Hate protest.
5: To to talk about the broader issue of of uh, like uh, sentiments against Asian and Asian American people, um, like that has been on the rise ever since uh, the pandemic.
2: He discussed what changes he would like to see come out of this protest. He mentioned one student... Kaikai Zhu, a visiting researcher who was charged by the U.S. government for allegedly lying about their ties to the Chinese military in their research and student visa applications. He was a graduate student studying machine learning and artificial intelligence at IU.
5: This is taking place here at IU, right? And one thing that has been a major concern about the safety and security a livelihood of uh, the let's say asian american community and asian community here at iu is that one of our students has been taken into federal custody ever since last summer and we want to see we want to see IU like uh, talk about how that case is going on what, what's going on with him if there's any sort of legal assistance offered to him and we want to be updated we want to we want to see are you take like taking real steps to protect uh, those who are being under attack here
2: lao discussed rising anti-asian hate in the united states he offered a statement to those who have been impacted by anti-asian hate and violence
5: what i want to say is that we We know that like there is this sentiment going for many, many, uh, like rising for many, many reasons. Asian people um, have been identified as as carriers of the coronavirus. Asian people have been identified as spies, um, uh, 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 like working for other countries, like uh, threats to America's national security, right? And what I want to say to them is that we we know that these are unfair and unjust treatments of us. And we know that, but we want to turn this uh, this, this anger uh, about the ways in which we are treated into action. And this is a way of us demonstrating our power. So we want to empower ourselves, and we should not be standing in solidarity with, um, like broadly speaking, with all other fellows in the Asian American community, but also with other marginalized and vulnerable groups of society. And together we can force a change.
2: According to a flyer distributed at the gathering, quote, the university has spoken out against anti-Asian violence only in name. Their actions, however, suggest otherwise. Through the course of our fee strike, the Office of International Services has sent intimidating emails targeting the international community. This goes against IU's own stated values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, end quote. The Indiana Grad Workers Coalition said in a statement that now more than ever, IU needs to provide for and protect its most vulnerable and targeted populations, recognizing this as a moment to lead in the fight for social justice for all.
3: The Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners considered a contract with Habitat Solutions for a controlled burn at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Natural Resources Manager Steve Cotter spoke during their March 23rd meeting.
6: This time we would like to burn on the east side of Headley Road above the parking lot, so just north of the parking lot near the boathouse. This activity was recommended by the Division of Nature Preserves, mainly to promote the growth of oak and hickory. Uh, Those forests are thought to be more resilient to climate change and they are also more valuable to wildlife species.
3: Cotter mentioned the prescribed burn would allow more sunlight to encourage growth of new seedlings and also reduce stagnation of air surrounding oak trees. Board member Jim Whitlatch asked Cotter about the burn's proximity to residential homes.
2: My second question is how close is the burn going to be to residential homes or any other property?
6: It would be at least a half a mile away from the closest home, I believe. Um, I don't have that exact distance yet. When we do the burn plan, uh, which Habitat Solutions will create for us, we will um, figure out how far they are and we will notify those property owners.
3: Cotter also proposed a contract with Ecologic LLC for vegetation monitoring at Griffey Lake. He mentioned a three-year contract would monitor herbaceous and woody plant progression within 12 designated observation areas. Board members unanimously approved both contracts.
2: Bloomington Board of Public Safety member Luis Fuentes Roer questioned Deputy Police Chief Joseph Qualter about neighborhood research specialists during their March 23rd meeting. He questioned if research specialists could manage calls for help on their own. Can they resolve these usually by themselves? That's, that would be the goal in that we are sending a
1: civilian representative of the department to take care of those types of calls that are not necessarily police related, but result in a phone call to the police department. Uh, Keep in mind that much as we've talked about previously, who else are you going to call at three o'clock in the morning when you have a problem? There are not your normal city Mm -hmm. service agencies or even your social service agencies open. So, you know, when in doubt, call the
2: police. Qualter stated the neighborhood research specialists were introduced to meet the community need without overworking sworn officers. He mentioned the specialists are not available 24 hours a day.
3: The Richland Bean Blossom School Board approved an increase in substitute teacher and custodian pay rates. Business manager Matt Irwin mentioned the importance of competitive substitute teacher pay during their March 22nd meeting.
7: If you're not competitive and already what's a short market to find the type of people that we need to fill these positions, it makes that even harder. And so this is to make sure that we stay competitive and fair with that daily rate wage for those people. Um, and so the the wage increases $10 more a day. So we have a couple different levels of, of payment that we have for those individuals. Um, and so we would be taking what would be our typical $65 a day job to 75 and the 80 to a 90. Um, and so it's a $10 increase in the wage.
3: Irwin mentioned an additional cost from Kelly Services would increase the charge for RBB to $13. He mentioned
7: the yearly increase would be around $30,000. And I gave you guys some rough numbers on an estimate of what it would look like in a really perfect scenario of taking a high average of 15 absences needing filled on a daily, week, daily, which is probably a high average. If you times that by every single day in the school year and then you took the $13, you, you get a, a possible maximum increase of around $30,000, and that's in a per- perfect scenario.
3: Superintendent Jerry Sanders stated it is most difficult to find substitute teachers for special education classes. Irwin mentioned the custodian pay rate would increase to $13 an hour.
7: So what I want to do is I want to move that starting rate to a more competitive rate, which is $13 an hour that starts. And then I've shortened the scale um, to top out exactly about where it topped out before, but in the past it was about 25 years to age through that scale. And so I would like it to age out through about 10 years. And so they can move through the scale a little sooner. And they start out at a more competitive rate, um, is what we see around our area, um, and so that we can make sure to continue to get more and more quality employees that stay with us for a long period of time. Irwin
3: said high turnover rates could cause strain on the buildings and staff. Board members unanimously approved the salary changes.
2: Now it's time for your feature reports. Up first, we have an excerpt from the latest edition of Big Talk. Host Michael Glab interviews author Lori Borman, whose work, 100% American Hate Groups, Christian Nationalism, and the Indiana KKK, was recently published in the Limestone Post. Glab says his discussion with Borman is particularly relevant this week in the wake of the mass killing of Asian Americans in Georgia.
1: My guest this week is the author of a very fascinating and disturbing piece in Limestone Post magazine. She is Lori Borman, the writer and editor. Lori, hi. Thanks for joining us on Big Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, the article she has written has been headlined, 100% American, Hate Groups, Christian Nationalism." and the Indiana KKK, the kind of thing we liked to pretend for many years just didn't exist around these parts anymore, or anywhere in America. Lori, maybe as recently as 10 years ago, most people would have thought the KKK was really a relic of the past, sort of just a blot on the nation's history, and thankfully long gone and nearly forgotten. But guess what? And and especially according to your story,
8: that's not true anymore. What happened? It's kind of a long story. The KKK was very big in the 20s in Indiana. And um, there's a book out by James Madison. And I listened to him talk about his book called KKK in the Heartland. And it really kind of details what, how prevalent the KKK was in the 20s. And it It got me thinking when I listened to him talk about it, well, what's happened to them? And why, you know, I know there's a lot of division now, but why aren't they big anymore? And for that matter, it was surprising to see how popular it was in the 20s. One in three white Protestant men in Indiana belonged to it.
1: One in three. 33% of the males who purportedly were Protestants, uh, Jesus-loving type people, were members of the KKK. What do you think was the draw of the KKK for them?
8: Three things, uh, primarily. One, a a fear of immigrants, a fear of losing your place in society. So they were uh, quite heavily anti-Catholic because they saw immigrants at that time were primarily, you know, from Catholic uh, dominant countries. Right. Um, They were afraid of blacks still replacing white jobs and and Jews, which is, you know, from time immemorial.
1: The big three back then. Uh, Jim's book, The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland, that was uh, released by Indiana University Press just last year, 2020. Jim Madison, who is a a professor emeritus of history at Indiana University, he wrote in that book that some KKK members would show up at church on Sunday mornings in full Klan regalia. Can you imagine that?
8: Pretty shocking. And the pictures in the book, there's a lot of pictures in the book of all these different or gatherings And I think people saw that as very, you know, American to be pro-white Christian America. That helped them to have that kind of view. And they were also part of the temperance movement. So that brought along a lot of other people.
1: Wait a minute. Do you mean they were dries? Yes. You know, all these photos we've seen of lynchings and so forth and these party atmosphere type get togethers where, you know, they're all laughing and having a gay old time at the night while burning a cross or, or hanging a poor soul. This wasn't fueled by alcohol.
8: Well, that was part of their oath. So whether or not somebody personally believed it, that was just part of it.
1: Here in Indiana, the reach of the KKK went so far as the governor, Ed Jackson, was a prominent member of the KKK, the governor of the state. And at one time,
8: the mayor of Bloomington.
1: Can that possibly be true? How can we possibly believe it? We're the Blue Island in the middle of the red state. We're right. We're good. We're on the Proper side of every issue, but apparently not.
8: Apparently not through history.
1: Does someone need to wear a white robe with a hood to be a hater?
8: Well, obviously not. Not anymore. And I think even back then, you still could be a hater without being a part of the Ku Klux Klan. I think that what was so surprising to me was how prevalent it was and today it's different it's not there are still Ku Klux Klan in Indiana but there are other groups and spread through different ways than the kind of way that people belonged back then you know to a group you didn't have social media you didn't have so it was kind of like a club
1: in those days it was almost as though you were declaring yourself to be a member of this gang by putting on the robes, by putting on the hood and all that, it was almost easier to say, oh, there's one, oh, there's another. Today, you could be sitting in a waiting room with four Klan members, and you have absolutely no idea.
8: True, but you could also tell the number of the white supremacist groups or the racist groups, hate groups, do have symbols, like three percenters, the um, the Oath Keepers with their orange hats, um, yeah. or Proud Boys with their Hawaiian shirts. You know, there, there are ways that you can still tell some people.
1: There are even these silly hand signals, I've noticed. There's the one where... The old sign for OK, like this, I'm demonstrating to you on our Zoom meeting here, uh, Lori Borman. There are hand signals. It's almost like the old secret handshake type of thing.
8: Sad. And, you know, I'm a scuba diver, and that means that your air is working to do an OK symbol. So I'm really kind of upset that they took that.
1: Honest to gosh, you could be scuba diving and people think you're signaling to another KKK member or Proud Boy or... (laughs) or what the hell ever they're called. Now, you mentioned Jim Madison's book. You also mentioned a second book, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry's Taking Back America for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. You quoted this from that book, and I'll read it here. Quote, Christian nationalism is fundamentally about preserving or returning to a mythic society in which traditional hierarchical relationships, e.g. between men and women, whites and blacks, are upheld. And the authority structures are biblical and just. You know, the funny thing is, that view of piety in the Bible, most of us pretended it didn't exist anymore until just a very few recent years ago. I wonder, do you have an idea... How did the adherents of this kind of thinking keep that line of thought alive while essentially hiding it from general society for maybe 30 or 40 years? These people kept this under wraps for the longest time. How did they keep that train of thought alive while hiding it from the rest of general society? Or did they?
8: And I'm not sure that they did. Uh-huh. I think maybe there have been groups all along, but who have purported that, who have um, supported it. And I think what we have now is a really interesting and sad situation of a crisis with COVID, with lost jobs, with people feeling marginalized or depl- displaced perhaps by immigrants, perhaps by, um, they're worried about their place in society. So they go back to what they think is the, um, as you'll hear from these white Christian nationalists, is that it's it's how our country was founded. It's kind of deceiving because you think, when you hear it, oh, yay, Christians, yes, that's America. It's not being anti-Christian to be um, against this Christian nationalist movement. That's where there's a big divide in that. There's a lot of people, according to his book, that are devoutly Christian, but they're not in support of those ideals.
1: Yet these ideals, this Christian white nation ideal, really in a large sense, hey, let's face it. That was the growth of America from early on. It was white men, landowners, who were the beneficiaries of the freedoms of America.
8: Well, and I think it goes back to Thomas Jefferson. You know, he is writing, you know, all men are created equal, except when it comes to black people that, and he was really one of the first to start writing about black people as being not really quite equal to white people. Because if he didn't do that, then it upset the entire capitalist system and and how most of these men that were currently in power could stay that way. <sighs>
2: Visit WFHB.org to hear the full interview. Big Talk airs each Thursday at 5.30 p.m. and again on Friday mornings at 11.30. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment hosted and produced by Richard Fish. Better Beware airs each Wednesday during the WFHB local news.
6: Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket.
9: The Better Business Bureau maintains a very interesting website called Scam Tracker. You can find it at bbb.org slash scam tracker, all one word. It contains information on every scam they know about, and you can search for where it happened, the type of scam, or by a keyword. Then you can sort the results by date, by type of swindle, by zip code, or by the amount of money the fraudsters got away with. Pretty neat, huh? So, I took a look at what's been working for the goniffs here in our local area just within the last year. Now some of the reports on the list say there was no money lost because the victim saw through the con in time to tell the con artist to take a hike. But a number of our friends and neighbors got clipped. The website gives no names, but here's a taste of what I found. One poor sucker lost 2000 bucks in a cryptocurrency scam. He said, and I quote, I got messaged by a broker to invest in bitcoins, and he said if I sent him the investment, he would invest it for me. In turn, he continued to ask for money and never gave me any money. When I called him out on this, he deleted his account and stopped answering emails. End quote. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and a bunch of others are new, weird, and risky enough without con artists. And responding to a message from someone you've never met is the modern equivalent of being pulled into a dark alley while walking down the street. Then another sad sack tried to buy a dog on the Internet a purebred corgi, apparently, from some place called the Lakefield Pup's Home. Doesn't that sound so nice and friendly, though? He or she sent the money via Zella, which is like wiring cash, no way to get it back, twice, before finally noticing complaints on the Internet and realizing it was a scam. Amount of money gone with the wind? Nine hundred smackers. Pet sales over the internet have been one of the biggest swindles during the COVIDemic, and buying any pet without seeing it first is just plain dumb. A third local person got taken by an outfit called iYogi. That's the letter I followed by Y-O-G-I, which Wikipedia describes as a technical support firm based in Gurugram, India. It's a subscription service, and the Wiki Wizard says it's been a substantial company but has a long history of problems and lawsuits. The local victim had canceled their service, but they continued to charge the credit card and sucked $150 halfway around the world to stay. That's just three out of 37 scams reported right around here in the last year. You should check out bbb.org slash scam tracker, and you better beware. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs.